from Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 359. Today's show is brought to you by Bombus, Instabug, Privacy, and ExpressVPN. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. And Jason Snell, you know what time it is, right? Mike, it's the Summer, Summer of Fun! It started. It Jason Snell, I am very aware of the fact that we may have new upgradients. And they have no idea why we keep shouting that. So, Jason yeah. Snell, what is the Summer of Fun? Oh, um, it's a special time uh, that happens... Ideally, once a year, <laughs> when <laughs> I mean we've we you know it, we've talked about it uh, before, but just as a recap, what happened originally is we we got to the summer doing upgrade. Mm-hmm. We started upgrade in the fall. We got to the summer, and there was a lot of travel going on. Mike was going here and there, and here and there, and I was doing a little bit of traveling too. And we ended up in this question of like, what are we doing for the summer? Because we end up having to have guests. And we're going to have to pre-record episodes. Uh, there's various choices, right? When, when we're not available on Monday or Tuesday or like somewhere very close to our, our recording date, you don't want to record an episode of Upgrade three weeks early because things change and we talk about current events. So what we ended up doing was adapting. And, and your choices are get guests or pre-record. And if you pre-record, you can't do something timely. So you have to come up with a concept or a topic or something that you can pre-record that is not going to be invalidated by the events of the next week Mm -hmm. or two. So we kind of fell into this concept of the summer of fun, mostly as a way to explain to listeners why the summer, why upgrade in the summertime gets a little bit weird. Like Mm -hmm. weird, okay, weirder than it usually is. (laughs) And yep. and it, it has taken, you know, sometimes it's pretty simple. Like it's, a, you know, we did like a, a panel from an event once and I, I brought on guest, uh, guests to talk to me when Mike is traveling. We've done like con- conceptual episodes that we pre-recorded, a bunch of different stuff like that. Um, it's a grab bag. Every week is different. Um, not every week is going to be a complete rethinking of the podcast format, but we do that occasionally. We did an episode a couple of years ago where we did the entire show backward. We started yeah. with goodbyes, went into ask upgrade, and then we ended with the Snell talk question and hellos. And that was the end of the episode. And we called that downgrade because it was the reverse of upgrade. We did outgrade last year, which was high concept. Because we're all li- we were all locked in. And so we did an episode where Mike and I were like in a soundscape where we had background noise and we were walking around as if we were out and about taking a hike. Um, you know, that uh, some, some people complain. They're like, why is why does it not sound normal? And the answer is, well, we were trying something different. So mm-hmm. Summer of Fun, that's what it's about. It's not always going to be something that blows your mind that is totally different, but it, it's really us sort of uh, turning on the, the the light that says things are not going to be your average upgrade for a little while. Um, also, Usually there's not a lot of, there's not as much news and there's not as much breaking stuff in the summer, usually, um, because Apple sort of takes a break after the developer conference and doesn't really come back until the iPhone event. So there's sort of a natural part where like the betas are out there and we do talk about them and all that, but there's sort of a a slacking off of, of, of Apple related news as well so that that's another last year was weird yeah because of the pandemic uh there there was no break in the sense of like just news kept happening things kept happening which is uh is unlike the other years i mean as you say we we did start this initially just because how do we explain why 
uh, we're having so many weird episodes in in the summer because of our vacations. Essentially. Exactly, but it, then it has actually become a thing of like, well, we want to do this show every single week. That's what we want to do. But we are mostly news focused, and so when there's no news, we need topics, and there's less news during June to September, and we usually end the summer of fun the week before, so the draft episode for the iPhone event. And again, last year, it went all the way to October, (laughs) and it wouldn't (laughs) stop. And again, we have no idea when it will stop this year as well. Now, on today's episode, we're kicking off the summer of fun with an extended Ask Upgrade of all summer-focused questions. It's true. Because I asked for them on Twitter via the Upgrade Twitter account, and we got a lot. Of requ- of questions, so we're going to be doing a bumper episode today. But just because it's the summer, we don't completely eschew our typical traditions of the show. I have a hashtag Snell Talk question for you, Jason. This one comes okay. from Tim, and Tim wants to know, do you still buy movies and TV shows on physical media? Ooh. I don't. I don't very often. I did so once I got my you know 4K HDR TV. I got a 4K uh, Blu-ray player, and I have bought some movies on 4K Blu-ray um, because at the time it was really because that 4K stuff wasn't really streaming commonly. Now, of course, every streaming service has at least a 4K option. Although, again, how how compressed they are with the bit rates that they're streaming is is up for grabs. So, uh, I, but already that was sort of it. Was is it, is this a movie that I want to watch uh, a bunch of times? And I think it would really benefit from being in glorious kind of like full quality 4K HDR high bandwidth on a disc. Um, and the truth is, those all come with digital copies that are in, you know, in iTunes at 4K <laughs> at this point. So I get a convenient kind of portable version as well. Um, I, I, my guess is that I'm not going to do it very often now because the fact is, like, do I want to buy that Marvel movie when I know it'll just be on Disney Disney Plus forever in 4K? And is that is that enough? Is that good enough for me? And the answer is, for most movies, probably. Um, so very, the answer is yes, but it is dramatically decreasing to the point where I, I may be done with it at some point. Other than occasionally there's a special example of something that I think, like I bought Into the Spider-Verse on 4K Blu-ray and I thought like this movie is so beautiful and I want to see it as in its absolute best form possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's fading away. Oh, I should say sometimes things aren't available digitally in any form streaming or a la carte and and you have to go buy the uh the dvd or or maybe you have to go buy the dvd if it isn't pirated on daily motion or so or vimeo or something which sometimes we actually did that for a podcast we were looking for an episode of a tv show for another podcast i do that i was thinking i was gonna have to buy the dvds like i did last summer for uh murder she wrote i think we needed an episode of murder she wrote for the magnum pi podcast because there's a crossover and i ended up finding on amazon i could like well i can buy the complete second season of murder she wrote for 14 dollars on amazon and just on dvd and just have that sent over and so i did that uh, but this <laughs> no, latest <you> have that. <laughs> yeah i do I, i'm gonna give it to scott mcnulty who is a murder she wrote fan i keep threatening to just send it to him one day a murder she wrote dvd set is going to show up in his mail and he'll probably be happy about it but this latest one that we're doing um i found the entire episode on vimeo <laughs> So it's like, oh, don't have to buy a DVD of this random show just for one episode of it. But for the most part, uh, 
you know, it's I, I I'm down to just these 4K uh, Blu-rays where it's like the super high bandwidth, high quality, and um, that's pretty much all the stuff that I'm buying, and I'm not even buying much of that anymore. If you would like to send in a question to help us open an episode of Upgrade, just send out a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk or use question mark SnellTalk in the Relay FM members Discord. We have something else for the summer of fun. Ooh. We have merchandise. We do. Go to UpgradeYourWardrobe.com and you can peruse our line of t-shirt designs. We've not had any merch on this show since 2019. So it's been a while. Now's the time. We are bringing back two previous designs, the original Dongletown t-shirt, which has been a big success. Um, one of the reasons we're bringing this back is I have a hole in mine and want a new one. So if you want one, uh, thank <laughs> my shirt for having a hole in it. It's the uh, truest reason to bring back merch <laughs> is that the podcasters need a new shirt. Although I, I'll say there's a danger there, which is every time I do an incomparable robot or a Skeletor, I buy one, mm-hmm. figuring you know my other one is going to uh, gonna die, but I am kind of infamous about kind of wearing my shirts beyond their welcome point, and I have I have like three robot shirts waiting to go now that I haven't worn. So it, you know th- there is a danger there too that eventually I'm just only going to be wearing my own podcast T-shirts. So <laughs> we also brought back the Dongletown Surf Club shirt. That was our last merchandise that we released yeah. in 2019. It's summary, and it's in some new colors. Yes. There's a there's a green and a purple. The purple is beautiful. Very the nice. Purple is amazing for the Dongletown Surf Club. If you're into that sort of thing, purple shirts and all, love it. So uh, there's those two that are coming back, but we have a brand new summer of fun inspired design. It is the Upgrade Summer of Fun T-shirt designed by Jason Snell. Yeah, it did a very good job. I hope from the people at Cotton Bureau, it's based on the Summer of Fun design by uh, Simon, our our uh, former designer, and uh, my friend Anthony Johnston, who is uh, sort of a he's a he's a video game writer and novelist and a comic book writer, but he used to be a graphic designer and still does some graphic design work uh, to help out his friends. And he he helped me out with the concept because I was struggling with exactly how to do a uh, kind of limited number of colors. Uh, t-shirt design that got across the summery, almost 80s vibe summery, uh, summer of fun t-shirt that I wanted to do. And he made a very specific uh, suggestion with the uh, with Simon's artwork that was perfect. And so um, I'm pretty happy with it. It looks pretty good. And then Cognero fixed all of my terrible um, uh, problems with (laughs) trying to figure out how to do vector art properly and clip vector art and affinity designer kind of let me down but cotton bureau they're pros they took care of it this shirt is available in a selection of blues beautiful blues to match with the ocean and also for the boring amongst you a black yeah, I, I like the irony of somebody wearing a black T-shirt that says Summer of Fun. So it's there if you want it. And you can just picture that the sun is setting into a backlit, silhouetted mm-hmm. ocean Honestly, of darkness. I probably will buy one of the black ones because there is something kind of heavy metal or goth about that in a way that I yep. enjoy. Yep. Um, there's also a tank top it's version as well of this one there because is. you know it's summer so if that's your jam we have that thanks to uh, Mrs. Soup of the chat room uh, Kathy Campbell who suggested that we had to do it as a tank top and uh, so it is there it is tank top available so that's three t-shirt designs they're available for two weeks two weeks 14 days there you go so just two weeks we'll remind you next week mm-hmm. about the summer of fun 
and you can get your Dongletown t-shirts and get your Summer of Fun. I love the the Summer of Fun t-shirt. I'm really excited about it. It was uh, it was uh, I had that moment right where you and I were talking and I said I think we should do a Summer of Fun t-shirt and you're like okay go go for it and I had to figure out like what fonts Simon used and where the design was and all of those things but uh, I'm happy about it. I'm going to be wearing that one this summer. For sure. Yeah, I can't wait. I really can't wait mm-hmm. to get mine. So go to uh, upgradeyourwardrobe.com or you can click mm-hmm. the link in the show notes and you can pick up your merch. Enjoy it and you'll also be helping support the show as well. So thank you so much. Uh, I have my very own uh, 24-inch iMac now. Yeah, so you returned the um, the Apple loaner. My review unit, yeah. And replaced it with itself? Yeah, I have a yellow... I fell in love with this computer. You know, I think I said this oh. at the time. I'm not surprised. If anybody listened to the episode where I reviewed this thing a few weeks ago, it was very... I'd already bought it. <laughs> I, I fell in love with it immediately. Uh, and I also... I found, I think, some really great uses for this machine. Mm. So, like, right now, it is my recording machine, and I really love it. I have it... The monitor that I was using on my Mac Mini before, I have set off on the side, and that's where I put all of my audio hijack and zoom and all that kind of stuff when I record. Um, I think the screen, then, what's left is perfect for me, um, size-wise, for now. Like, if I... You know, if I have all this other stuff on the other monitor, then I have more than enough space for my web browser and stuff like that. Um, It performs way better for me than um, any Intel Mac has before when using programs like Logic. So, like, there was a a two-week period of when I'd returned the iMac to Apple and mine had arrived. And going back to the Mac Mini for editing was real rough. Like, I hated it. But it was just not responsive in the way that the M1 Macs are. So I can't imagine that I would be getting another desktop Mac until way later in the year, maybe next year, you know, when Apple actually releases something that I would want to replace the iMac Pro that I have at home. And then I've decided now my kind of future computing needs are becoming clearer. Uh, this machine would then be become our home computer, and I would swap in a professional grade quote unquote machine. Right. Um, and then this machine would become the home machine, replacing the iMac Pro, uh, which is in kind of like my home office now, which is just not used. And so as we move forward, you know, we're hoping that we could maybe move home next year. We would have a kind of more general room, which would have a home computer in it, right? right? And this would be that machine. And as I said a few weeks ago, I think that's what this iMac is like perfectly made for to be that kind of like home computer. So that's where I am right now. And I am super happy with this. Uh, and one little f- thing that I've done, I think I may have mentioned this at the time. Um, I love having Touch ID, right? but I also love using keyboards of my own making. Sure. So I have used sticky Velcro tape, and I have stuck the, the Magic Keyboard underneath my desk so I can reach under to use Touch ID. <laughs> you have a little sneaky uh, place that you can put your finger under your desk and magic happens. Yep. It's really wow. great. And only on a couple of occasions I've bumped the button and locked my iMac. <laughs> but most of the time, it's awesome. And I really like this kind of uh, when I get to, uh, when it asks me, hey, use Touch ID, I kind of just reach under the desk, you know, like like a, like a panic button. Do you have it oriented so it's just the narrow side? So it's like running away from you? 
so it's it it's or is it wide? It's uh wide with the like with the back facing towards me, so the button is closest to me physically, right? Interesting. I was thinking you could also mount it you could also mount it uh with the narrow side on that corner where the button is. And then you'd have to put it on your right. I have it on my left, side. you see. That's yeah. that's where I wanted it on my left. So yeah, this this took some time because what, what you need if you're going to do this is the button to be like closest to you physically so you can easily reach for it. So you Otherwise, you're pressing that. all kinds of keys. Uh, so I have it on the left side you of could, the desk facing towards if me. You had, if you had key press problems, you could also probably use something um, like carabiner and like lock out all the keys on that keyboard other mm. than the... Other than the the power button, or I mean, you could basically lock out all the keys where it would just be using Touch ID. I bet I bet you could do that if it, but that would really only happen if you were, you know, accidentally you you twitched your leg and you typed a bunch of things on your underside keyboard. There's there's a couple of reasons I put it on the left side where it is. One, if I had it on the right, there would be more chance of me doing that just ah. with the way that the desk's oriented. Um, and also, I have height controls. This is the sit stand desk. And yeah. the height controls are on the right side. I, I would have okay. naturally wanted this on the right side, but there wasn't a way for me to put it and orient it in a way that was comfortable. So I moved it to the left. That's uh, that makes sense. This, no, this is great. I have I still have my review unit here. Um, it's due back in a couple of weeks. I've been using macOS Monterey on it, and I will, I'm probably going to ask them if I can extend my loan for a little bit because it's really nice to have mm-hmm. a modern Apple Silicon system that is running macOS Monterey beta um, that is not like the laptop that I have to take when I travel because <laughs> then I'm on a beta when I travel, and I don't mm-hmm. like that idea. That's That does not make me comfortable at all. So, um, and uh, yeah, they're great. I, I, my reluctance in in buying one is just that it is not a suitable replacement for my iMac Pro. Um, it, it's just not. There are too many things that I'm doing with, especially Isotope. The people, good people at Isotope, make some amazing sound plugins. A lot of them are not multi-core enabled, and it's really sad, or not properly multi-threaded, and it, none of them are. Um, running on native on Apple Silicon right now. And as a result, going from Intel with eight cores down to a uh, an M1, it for a lot of those plugins, it's just terrible. Like mm-hmm. I can't I can't go to the current M1s and do what I'm doing. But it the temptation is is real. <laughs> so um, I'm just gonna have to bide my time. Having the MacBook Air also really helps because I do have an M1 Mac. I can I can do stuff on that and it's delightful. But um, but I, I, I'm just going to be – I'm in the position of, I think, a lot of our listeners, which is I'm waiting it out because what I really want is the stuff that's enabled by whatever the next Apple Silicon chip is, whether it's an M1X or an M2 or whatever they call it, that kind of more cores, more capable for more pro applications kind of thing. And then I just need um, the maker of these intense sound plugins that I use to get their button gear and <laughs> – to actually release an Apple Silicon version because I don't know what their problem is. Last week, Windows 11 was shown off. Microsoft Yes, it was. Um, and Windows 11 looks really interesting. Uh, I does. want to give a bit of follow-out because... So I host another podcast on Relay FM called The Test Drivers with Austin Evans where I guess it's kind of 
like my other shows, but not really focused about Apple so much. Like we talk about all of technology, right? So we'll and gaming too is, is a bit of a crossover. So, but we had the opportunity to sit down with Panos Panay, who is uh, Microsoft Chief, Microsoft's Chief Product Officer for Windows and devices like surfaces and stuff. If you've seen any of the Surface presentations in the last couple of years, you would have seen Panos. Uh, most notably, I think, for a lot of people, he uh, showed off the Windows, um, the Surface Duo and Neo, the, the, the folding devices, a couple of years ago. I, this was actually one, we got to sit down with him, we had a great interview, a great discussion, which I was very pleased that we got to to talk to Panos. So I'll put a link in the show notes. I would really love it if you go and check it out because I'm really proud yeah. of the way the episode came together. I would say this is the Microsoft equivalent of what uh, Gruber did getting Greg Joswiak and Craig Federighi. Like, Panos yep. is their demo guy. Um, Apple is, doesn't really have yeah. a demo guy. I mean, maybe like Phil Schiller or something used to be that. But, like, the, he's the guy who demos all the new hardware, especially mm-hmm. at Microsoft. Uh, he's, he's a, I mean, he also ran a, the yeah. Windows 11 presentation. I would say, yeah. like... No, no, he's their demo guy now. He's their presentation guy, right? Like, Satya yeah. Nadella's not going to do it. Panos does it. And Panos is so good at demos. Um, like, I, I, I've said this before I got the chance to speak to him, so there's no bias here. Uh, I think he is the best in tech right now at giving a presentation because nobody makes you believe how much they believe something's good than Panos Panay. Like, he, like, has the ability to, like, make you feel genuinely emotional about the things he's talking about. Mm. Like, I'm watching the Windows 11 presentation and, and I'm like, yeah, man. The pandemic was hard, you know. <laughs> it's like, you're right, panels. It was. He's he's so he's very very good, um, and you know, like you were mentioning, like he he's very high up at Microsoft. I think his boss is the CEO. So, uh, I was yeah. really honored that we got that Microsoft reached out to to have us have that interview. And I really wanted to recommend people go and check it out because if you are wondering, hey, what's this Windows 11 thing about? I think this episode will help you understand. And we're not going to talk about Windows 11 here yet, although some are fun. You never know what might happen. But mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I took away from it, like it's interesting. They did a bunch of interesting stuff. They're trying to, the interface looks good. I, I feel like maybe they at Microsoft is, has reached a point where they're okay with making changes and and breaking some compatibility in a way mm-hmm. that Microsoft has never been before. And you see it in a couple of ways. First off is the interface really does look genuinely way better than it's ever looked before. And I, you know, I think they're to be congratulated for that. Um, and then the other thing is that they announced the hardware support for this and they're requiring essentially this hardware security chip uh, to be present. Yeah. And it's the equivalent of the T2 essentially on an Intel Mac. And they're requiring that to be present. And it, it's breaking compatibility with all sorts of old hardware. In fact, I have a Surface Go from not too many years ago, and it just won't work with a Windows 11 because it doesn't have that uh, stuff in it. And it's just like, no, it won't work. So that's a, we'll see if they stick to it. Because, you know, traditionally what Microsoft has done is come out with big, bold announcements. And then all of their partners and, you know, and their enormous user base and all that sort of revolts. And then they, they sort of backslide. But I don't know. I feel like this time their answer is going to be, yeah, just keep using Windows 10. Windows 11 is about the future. So I, I like to see that because that's been the tragedy of Microsoft for the last decade yeah. plus. They is had that to hold they on to too ha- much stuff. Yeah, they have great ideas and then they are basically trapped to not really implement them or backtrack from them because everybody's demanding that they just remain 
compatible with everything in the past. And I think they've reached a point with Satya Nadella where Windows is not um, the point. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but like Windows is not the point of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Which with Steve Ballmer, Windows was the point of Microsoft, mm-hmm. and with Nadella, it's not like the Azure is and Office three sixty five is, but Windows is Windows is important, obviously, but it's not like the point of Microsoft, and Microsoft doesn't revolve around it. And I think that maybe gives them some freedom to do things like say, we're going to build a next generation Windows that breaks compatibility with a bunch of stuff, and Windows ten is still around. For people who are, you know, still, <laughs> for those of you still using Windows XP, Windows 10 is upgradable, <laughs> but Windows 11 is going to be new and different. And uh, yeah, really interesting what Microsoft is doing. So good for them. And I'm glad you got to talk. Thank you. You and Austin to uh, Panos. That's great. Yeah, it was the the one frustration I have about the interviews. We didn't know at this point about the compatibility thing because we recorded a couple of hours after the Microsoft event and the tool to check wasn't available. So we didn't know about just how many devices they were going to cut out. And so you know, it's something I want to dig into in the future a little bit more as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess the only other thing that I think is worth mentioning, because it will be, um, I think, helpful context for some of the conversations we're going to have later on in this episode. One of the things Microsoft announced was some pretty big changes to the business model of the Microsoft Store, which is their app store, basically. Mm-hmm. where now they are taking a 15% cut from developers that use Microsoft Payment Platform. But you can also list your app on the Microsoft Store, use your own payment processing system, and give Microsoft nothing. Right. So it, it essentially becomes a catalog of available software mm-hmm. for Windows, which is a different model, right? It's interesting because they originally the, their model was kind of an App Store model. And they're backing off of that. And and I think some of that is reading the room, right? And being like, aha, we can do this. Yep. Um, but also I think it, 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 it's less painful a decision for them to make. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not in the Microsoft uh, store that now they can just sort of say, yeah, we'll list you. It's fine. You can do whatever. Um, because the goal there is just to make it easier for consumers to find software. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something that you can do if you don't have any apps in your app store, right? This is something that you will do. I mean, but it could be argued that maybe the Mac app store, Mac app store. is in a similar mm-hmm. boat, so. Yep. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Bombus. Pride is a time to celebrate all things LGBTQ+, and Pride also means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And that's why this year, Bombus is choosing to be proud in every way, of your sexuality, your gender, your culture, all things that have shaped your unique pride. And they're doing it with a collection of colorful clothing inspired by all of the different experiences that make up the LGBTQ community. There is something for everyone in this collection. Do you want socks inspired by different pride flags? Bombers made some. Or maybe you're looking for a super soft striped rainbow shirt. They have those as well. They even have special pride underwear, which is super colorful too. I was looking through the collection earlier on today, and some that really caught my eye. They have these tie-dye socks that use colors from different pride flags, and they look fantastic. But the whole range is awesome. 
The Bombas Pride collection is also designed to give back. For every clothing item you purchase, another item will be donated to someone affected by homelessness in their LGBTQ plus community. Homelessness disproportionately affects the entire LGBTQ plus population, but people of color and transgender individuals within the community are even more at risk. That's why each donation will be going to one of three organizations working specifically with transgender and BIPOC communities. To shop the collection and learn more about the organizations your purchase will be supporting, go to bombas.com slash upgrade and use the code upgrade to get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash upgrade. And let me tell you, as somebody who wears Bombas clothing, I wear Bombas socks every single day. They are incredibly comfortable, really great. I love that they stay up. They have all the padding that I need. They are the most comfortable socks I have ever worn. So not only will you be able to show your pride, you'll be able to support some organizations. You're also going to have really comfortable feet. Our thanks to Bombas for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Let's do some upstream headlines. Upstream is where we recap oh, yeah. some of the stuff going on in streaming digital media. Uh, I have some Ted Lasso-related follow-up upstream for you. Oh, follow yes. upstream. Uh, Screentimes.net spoke to someone at Warner regarding international sales of Ted Lasso merch. So you'll remember last week, I was elated that, that there was Ted Lasso merch and then disappointed uh, that it was not shipping internationally. And Warner said that they are, quote, looking at possibilities. This means to me, it's never going to happen. Uh, that's I'm, I'm very used to these things by now. Uh, when big American companies say, hey, we're looking at possibilities, it means, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, and Bill Lawrence has also said that higher quality jerseys are going to be available in September. So if you're unhappy with the T-shirt that they've got for the like the football jersey shirt, they're going to have actual what he has said, like professional looking and feeling shirts with personalization available later on this year. Yeah, it's, I don't know what's going on here, right? Like we announced, we, we announced that this was open, but it's not international. And we, the, honestly, the, uh, the merch is underwhelming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's, I saw somebody say in our chat room uh, last week while we were recording, they were going through, they were combing through the Ted Lasso merch site. And somebody said it was very much a design is my passion, graphics design is my passion kind of vibe <laughs> where it felt like, I mean, honestly, some of the some of the items feel like somebody took a you know mug maker from Zazzle and just put in a Ted Lasso thing and said, good enough. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad because you look at the stuff that fans generated and it's way better. And it makes me wonder, I know that there are some sites that do this, but like harness the creativity of, of fans to make, like to use your IP to make stuff where they get a little tiny kickback from designing it, but you take obviously the bulk of the profit. Like I, you get better merch that way. And this stuff is really uninspired. Like literally there's better, there's vastly better Ted Lasso merch on Etsy and Cotton Bureau and Redbubble and places like that where they're unlicensed <laughs> than this stuff that's in their store. And and then you see Bill Lawrence say that they're going to actually have, they apparently have a deal with some like some somebody to make actual pro style jerseys. Uh, I also wonder if that some of that delay. So this is a very, very, very minor season two spoiler out of the trailer, which is that they they clearly have changed the club. The fictional club has changed its sponsor, its kit sponsor for its next season in the, in the, in the league. So, um, and I kind of assume that's going to be a plot point, but it might not be. 
Um, either way, I wonder if one of the reasons that it's coming in September and all of that is they actually want to have it be the season two kit and they don't want to spoil the fact that they changed their, their kit in season two. So we'll see. But, um, but it's, it's a little bit baffling that they've kind of booted this. And I, I, I give them uh, a little bit of credit for the fact that it, nobody expected Ted Lasso to be a, a merchandise machine, but this is, uh, it's, it's not great stuff. So, uh, oh, well, there, there's, maybe there's more better stuff coming. The show has also won a 2021 Peabody Award, quote, for offering the perfect counter to the enduring prevalence of toxic masculinity both on screen and off in a moment when the nation truly needs inspiring models of kindness. Yeah, it's great. It's an out of left field award, but an award nonetheless, and for a good reason. Yeah, Peabody's do that. That's That's a very Peabody. Peabody Awards are all over the place trying to honor good stuff. So. I mean, like, uh, just as if you were imagining, uh, as part of Apple TV, what your rewards were going to be for your TV show. Maybe this isn't what you would have na- naturally expected, but it's great nonetheless, right? Yep. Uh, last week, Apple sent out an email to subscribers letting them know that the fact that, that their free trial period was ending, and they also used this as an opportunity to uh, promote some of their upcoming shows. So there's some dates for stuff that we already know about or reiterations. But this email confirmed that the problem with Jon Stewart will premiere in September as well as Foundation. And today, uh, Apple released a new trailer for Foundation and confirmed that this was going to be premiering on September 24th. Um, And I watched the trailer. I have never read and kind of honestly know nothing about the Foundation series books Mm. by Isaac Asimov. And so I don't really understand what is going on in the trailer. Like, I don't know if you right. need context or it helps to have the context, uh, but it looks beautiful and I'm intrigued. Honestly, it looks like a movie with the quality of yeah. special effects and stuff. So, so Foundation yeah. was written like 70 years ago. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I read it for a podcast a few years ago. I read the books. There, there's an original trilogy and then he kept writing Foundation books. They're, they're not... They're full of interesting ideas. I would say that in, in in terms of being the basis for a TV show or a movie now, it's actually about the right level, which is it's more concerned with the ideas and the big sweep of the plot than it is with the characters. So in some ways, I think that might be better because it allows the modern writers to uh, flesh it out from there and just sort of honor the big points without having to worry too much about the individual characters. But the the big idea of foundation is that there's a galactic empire and there's a guy who's invented this technology that enables him to accurately predict the future and he says oh the empire is going to collapse in fact it's already started it's going to collapse and we have a choice to make which is do we work to reduce the amount of chaos that comes to the galaxy do we work so that we recover in 500 years instead of 1,000, or 1,000 instead of 2,000. Get out of the Dark Ages. But what he says is, the Dark Ages are coming. It's going to be really bad. Um, but are we willing to work and sacrifice now so that future generations feel less pain? 
And uh, as I was watching that trailer, huh. I was thinking, huh. oh, man, oh, this no. could not be more applicable to modern society than that. That's kind of amazing, given that this is a, a core story from 70 years ago. Uh, and Jared Harris is that guy, is the, the visionary guy, Harry Seldon. And uh, and this trailer focuses also sort of like on the the emperor, basically, who's a chain of, I think, cloned uh, emperors and the idea of you've got people in power who are being threatened and are probably also pretending that their empire isn't crumbling, but it is crumbling um, and it looks great. Very interesting stuff in there. So, well, you know, you never know until you see it. But um, I could see how this is actually a, a, a going to be relevant and and a winner and it certainly looks like they spared no expense like you said it's so we have a date for it september 24th so not too far away dan Harmon and nathan pyle are teaming up to create an animated version of pyle's strange planet comic for apple tv plus this is going to be produced in-house at apple studios with animation production from shadow machine who worked on bojack horseman yeah, I'm. Uh, I enjoy that comic. I think it's uh, very amusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see how this is a series, but that's their problem. They'll they'll figure it out or they won't. But yeah. it seems very much like a one joke thing, and I enjoy the individual jokes. But I just as I wouldn't expect it, an animated series based on Alex Norris's webcomic name, where every episode I guess ends with them saying, "Oh no, mm-hmm. I don't know." Uh, Strange Planet feels the same way to me, but. Obviously, like you could take the idea of these aliens that come to Earth and underst- and try to understand it, and like that's the story, right? Yeah, like, I think I think that's what you have people. to do. Is yeah. you have to really expand the canvas, and yeah. and so we'll see. I mean, Dan Harmon obviously got this gig because of Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it's a it's sort of a you know he's done he's done the animated comedy thing and. uh and knows how to do that and knows how to run shows. Of course, he ran Community, which was one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, and uh, Nathan Pyle is the cartoonist, and they're going to give it a shot. And it's all Apple. It's Apple Studios in-house. It's, you know, it's an Apple TV Plus joint. So we'll see how it goes. They actually have a history, too. The The Hollywood Reporter mentioned this, and I was looking it up today, too. Um, Abed used to wear, a, like, T-shirts on Community, the character Abed, that were yes. Nathan Pyle's designs. Ah, so, assuming that these things don't happen, you know, randomly, uh, yeah, they're, they're maybe they're, they're familiar with each other from before. But. I, I have. It's funny. Um, I there is a an official list of Abed shirts. <laughs> like, okay. there's an Abed shirts re- subreddit. <laughs> of course. Um, and I, I've, I bought a couple of those. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're good. They're good. Lots of good. Uh, Lots of good Abed shirts. So I think they all came another. from Threadless when Threadless was the thing. Yeah, the I think that's right. So f- we're outside of Upstream now, moving on. Uh, friend of the show, Mark Gurman, has gotten into the newsletter game over at Bloomberg. Uh, he's around writing a newsletter every week called Power On, um, and it's, a, it's focused on technology. There's some basketball thrown in there too. Um, the first issue is, uh, has been published on Bloomberg's website. I read it today, and it's really interesting because it has his personality back into it, where mm-hmm. Mark's Bloomberg writing doesn't feel like Mark Gurman is writing it, if that makes It's not in his voice, where this is in his voice. And for one, I just found that good, <laughs> right? Because I think this is one of the things that, that is different from, say, yeah. someone like Jason Snell 
to if Jason Snell, maybe it maybe as well, like the stuff that you write for Macworld is less Jason Snell yeah. to a point. Yeah, but I'm a columnist and it's it's not yeah. really. But yeah, you're right. If I wrote at Bloomberg, um, it, it would be substantially different, the people said. Mm-hmm. The people say. There was no the people say in this no article no it's it's super chatty and you know mm-hmm. he's gonna launch it with a with a tidbit right so he did yep so he did and they published this one uh so you know you can go and subscribe i'd subscribed anyway because i was just into it like i, I like this idea it's free i think too uh, yeah. i don't know what what the, honestly i don't know what the point of that is like i'm seeing more companies do this these days they have free newsletters written by well, columnists I- I think the idea here is that they're they're attaching people to the columnists, and then there are links in the article. And the idea there is that you're you're sort of making them um, find the value from Bloomberg as a source, and ultimately right. that that will lead to some conversion to Bloomberg. Maybe there could be ads in those newsletters in the future too. Sure, but it seems like now there are loads of newsletters that are paid. Larger uh, media companies are getting into yeah. newsletters that are free. That are free. And it's just really interesting that we're moving around like this but this is kind of where we are so yeah in this first issue uh mark talks about how much he's using his ipad pro now and then just casually mentions that apple uh uh, testing larger ipad pros in the 14 to 16 inch range and if they're released could be sometime in the next few years yeah not he says sort of they're still working on it and figuring out what the right size is so this is not a they're planning it for next year as much as they're testing out larger ipads um, it's interesting cause I've been reading, um, oh, who was it? Somebody, uh, on Twitter that I saw that said that they've, they've said, oh, here's Harry McCracken, um, who is, a was the editor in chief of PC world for many years. And he's an iPad first person and he's settled on the iPad, uh, 11 inch, um, which is interesting, right? Cause, uh, I, I think he was a 12.9 inch user before and I'm using the 12.9, um, and he said, I think the 11 inch is perfect, just like the 11 inch MacBook Air was perfect. Um, and I, I was thinking about that because on one level, I, I really see the value in going down to a smaller iPad. Like it's a, especially the M1 version is just, it's big and, and heavy. Um, but I, it would be hard for me to give up that screen. But I also see the other side of it, which is um, for certain tasks, you really do want more. And like, I think the challenge, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot over the next couple of years, Mike, but I think the challenge with having a very large iPad, a 15 or 16 inch iPad, is all ergonomics. Because, you know, you're not going to be waving that thing around with one hand. Like, it's going to be everything that is difficult about the 12.9 taken up several levels. So the question then is, where do you use that? Is it on a desk? Is it... You know, it, what does that magic keyboard look like if it can even have one? Um, it, you know, what what is it if you're using with Apple Pencil? How does that work? Like, I'm sure that's what they're struggling with when they look at this. It's sort of like, what are the ergonomics of a great big iPad? Because we already have the debate about the two iPad Pro sizes really attracting different people and having issues there. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I don't know what if you have any thoughts about kind of big iPad ergonomics yet because again we will revisit this undoubtedly over the next couple of years as rumors percolate but like I'm fascinated by that because I'm not sure I mean they're going to need to come up with some new thoughts about how people hold and use iPads if they're going to try to sell a 16 inch iPad well I think they've already started that it's the magic keyboard like that's Mm -hmm. the start of that that's you know because at that point your ergonomics are the same as a laptop you know by and large Um, it's 
in this thing and you open it up and you close it again, right? And yeah. better than, and you have more adjustability. So I think that's the start of this. And I think to go further, to go to 14 and 16 inch, they need to have another accessory. I don't know what it is, right? But like another accessory that goes along with it. Because I really think that if you have make this iPad, you kind of need to say this iPad works great here, here, and you can also yeah. hold it. Like that's, right. you know, like that's the not like you hold it in your hands and when you're ready, you put it no. in the magic keyboard, right? Like that's how we think about them now. It's more like the ads are going to show people like using an Apple pencil at a table or in their lap or something, yeah. right? Not just like holding it up and being like, oh, a movie that I'm holding this heavy thing for a movie. Like you hold it in transit and then you put right. it down onto something that it lives on. Like it's, we're now in a kind of like a different space. And personally, like where I am, I would like bigger on the higher end and the with the 11 like i think the 11 inch i'm one of these people i think 11 inch ipad pro is the best ipad pro Mm -hmm. the best ipad just i just think it's the best ipad sure and then 12.9 is really great for certain circumstances but for most people the 11 is the one that you would want it's the one that you should have i I always say this when people ask like to own a 12.9 inch ipad pro you kind of need to know you want that first like, if you're like, hey, I would like an iPad, don't know which one to get, you probably want the 11. <laughs> it yeah. would be my recommendation to you. The other thing that I, because, you know, this is the I want to believe thing. I actually wrote a piece about this at, at Macworld this week, uh, or last week, which is the um, the continuing drumbeat of all the reasons why, as I've talked about on Upgrade before, the reasons why I believe Apple is going to a windowing system or something with iPad OS. And I actually did um I did a mock-up of like what a 5K display with iPad stuff on it would look like mm-hmm. using existing for the most part existing iPad user interface stuff from iPad OS 15. And the answer is it looks kind of kind of good. It looks kind of like a Mac, but not because it's an iPad. Um and like I will throw in this idea of a 16-inch iPad like at some point full screen or even split view apps when the screen becomes large, become not just kind of ridiculous, but inefficient in the use of space on the screen. Mm-hmm. And although I know there are people who, like you open Photoshop on your Mac and your 27-inch iMac and you put it in full screen mode and you've just got the content there. Well, that's great. But um, 99.9% of the time I use the Mac, I have multiple apps and multiple windows up. And that's how that's how I can be efficient. I think there's some fundamental efficiency to be gained by allowing you to interleave several apps and have them all visible or partially visible in terms of having it be a visual way of understanding that multitasking is going on. And I think the iPad is going to have to grapple with this in some way, whether it's full-on floating windows or it's a tiling system, like what Microsoft is experimenting with a little bit more with Windows 11. Like, whatever it is, I think Apple has to do something. Otherwise, there's a point at which the iPad OS breaks, concept breaks down. Mm-hmm. And like the concept came from the iPhone. The concept came from the fact that the iPhone screen is so small it can only run one thing at a time. But like they've been over the last five years been hammering away at the idea that the iPad is different and it's it's got a bigger screen and you can put more information on it. But at some point here, they're going to have to go beyond full screen and split view and the fact that they're experimenting with center floating windows and quick note which is literally a floating window on top of other content from a different app like it's literally this one 
almost Mac window that escaped to the iPad. Like they're obviously experimenting with this stuff. So when I hear about them experimenting with a 14 to 16 inch iPad Pro, I think that's yet another like challenge for them that could potentially be solved by the same things that they're hopefully doing to try and solve what happens if you attach an iPad Pro to a large display and allow apps to just run on it instead of using it as a secondary. Um, because you got to do something because, uh, you know, I love my iPad apps, but I don't want any of them to be full screen or even split view on a 27-inch monitor. That's ridiculous. Uh, in this uh, newsletter, Mark Gurman also talks about changes to that Apple have been making to their still in existence and working self-driving car team. Mm. Uh, they've removed some people, they've made some changes, but one of the key hires that they made recently is uh, Ulrich Krantz, um, who helped oversee the i3 and the i8 at BMW and has held key positions at companies like Faraday Future, which is a new electric car company. So they're continuing to do something. Does this consist up of, uh, is this an upshift segment or is it too small to be an upshift segment? I think it's too small to be an upshift okay. segment. We At have, some point that will come back. We'll it is going to come again. back. We have a car, we have a car segment that we can do, but Not anyway, today. this guy got hired. So you wouldn't hire somebody if you weren't working on a car. So there you go. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Instabug. Building mobile apps presents some challenges. Bugs, crashes, and performance issues can be a nightmare for developers. But what if you could not only detect all of these issues, but understand the quality of your app from your user's point of view? Instabug's lightweight SDK grabs all of the insights that you need to help you build your quality apps. Through comprehensive bug and crash reports, performance monitoring, and real-time user feedback, all within one SDK. With Instabug, you can continuously monitor and measure the performance of your app as perceived by your users, engage with them by letting them report issues and questions right from inside the app itself, and get all of the information that you need about bugs, crashes, and other issues, whilst fixing those in record time all of a focus on privacy and security. And you don't have to worry about the hassle of switching to new tools. It only takes a minute to integrate Instabug into your app and it fits right within your existing workflows with support for Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, Zendesk, or wherever you use to handle your issues, uh, you're going to be able to have Instabug right there. Join over 25,000 top mobile developers around the world who use Instabug to ship high-quality apps. Go to try.instabug.com slash upgradefm. That's try.instabug.com slash upgradefm and check it out today. Our thanks to Instabug for their support of this show and Relay FM. Breaking news. Okay. Breaking news. Okay. Uh, Monterey Beta 2 was released just now. Okay. Uh, and last week, late last week, we got beta two of iOS and iPad OS. If yes. you're keeping score, so everybody was sort of saying, "What? Where's the Mac? What happened there?" I don't know what happened. The Mac engineers have to work over the weekend or something. <laughs> but uh, that beta is out now. So uh, the beta summer of betas, summer of beta fun, um, has finally reached the Mac. Thank goodness. Let's talk about. Oh boy. I have this I have this titled as Apple legislation and sideloading. And there's quite uh-huh. a lot of stuff going on here. Um and I guess we'll kind of just try and attack of it attack it as much as we can today. Yeah. So 
there were just a lot of things happening last week. I mean, there have been a lot of things happening anyway, but it started again last week. So the New York Times had a report that states that Tim Cook has been reaching out to various members of Congress um, to talk about how the potential antitrust legislation currently being debated in Congress could have serious effects on the way that the company does business. Cook is concerned that the legislation was rushed and would crimp innovation. Um, The bills that Tim Cook is concerned about are pretty wide-ranging. They came out of that antitrust uh, commission committee that was bringing all of the tech CEOs in over Zoom to talk to a matter of months ago. So it's, it's very unlikely that the five bills will all be passed. I mean, mostly because... Uh, I learn all this stuff from Ben Thompson. You, you should sure. you should read and subscribe to Checkery. But really, these a lot of the bills they overlap in weird ways, um, and 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 it's likely that maybe only one of them will get passed in its entirety of all. But there is a strong possibility that something will get through Congress as a result of this, which would likely have an effect on Apple's business in some ways. It could be stuff like limiting what apps are pre-installed on devices. Um, and making users choose. It could limit the types of businesses Apple are allowed to get into. It could force them to give up some of the businesses that they're currently in and could require them to make changes to App Store economics or have rival app stores available for the platform. It is also worth noting, this isn't just an American thing. There's a lot of stuff happening in the European Union as well. I mean, it's gotten far further in the European Union, um, where really with with the thing with Spotify that I think we touched on a while ago, it's just a case of waiting to see what are they going to say Apple has to do. It's not, you know, <laughs> they've already come to their conclusion, really. So this is just another of those things. I mean, you would assume naturally Apple cares most about what happens in America. Um, and so that's kind of where we are with that part of it. My kind of take on this part, is if any of these laws do get passed, it kind of feels like Apple's greed and or desire for control could result in the iPhone being worse for its users, right? I think, again, Ben Thompson put this really nicely. Apple's best feature is its integration in the operating system with the apps and services that it makes. But because they so harshly limit and put in such peculiar and I think wrong-seeming rules and limitations of some parts of their app store business, they actually risk the ability to keep this integration alive. And that could not only make things worse for them, actually ultimately could make things worse for Apple's customers as well because they won't let go a little bit. Yeah, I mean, imagine a world where you get an iPhone and it has no apps on it. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, you know, you look at something um, like Quick Note right? Apple wouldn't be allowed to do that because uh, unless they said every other Notes app can do this too, which would be kind of great, but Mm -hmm. they're unlikely, honestly, to even make that feature if that's what they're told they have to do. I think the general idea there is that you need space to innovate without being told that innovation has to be checked by a a court or Mm -hmm. that, you know, or you have a lawyer say, no, you can't add that feature, even though it would make people's lives better because we're not allowed to do that. And so nobody does it. And, and, you know, I think, and this is going to be true when we talk about Apple's uh, white paper that they released (laughs) last week as well. But I think there is an argument to be made that it's not all doom and gloom if we if you end up in a scenario where every time apple announces so let's let's talk about this um the the feature in 
iOS, iPadOS 15, and macOS Monterey, where your messages content gets put in other apps, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're in news or Safari or um, where else, photos, anyway, it surfaces content that's been shared with you via messages. And we talked about it after the keynote, like... On one level, that's cool. On another level, in the context of a developer conference, my immediate reaction is, why is it only for Apple's apps? Why is that not an API? And so, you know, you could make an argument that what what ideally, if there was going to be legislation like this, it wouldn't be you can't do it. It would be you can do this, but you need to let other people, mm -hmm. you need to build an API that you use that is public and available to other developers, not something that's private and just for Apple. So the model changes. The model becomes Apple has to build this thing with an API, and the goal is to make the platform better, but not to make its to lock people into its apps, but to instead make the platform better, and all of its competition, third-party add-ons could also take advantage of it. That's the that's the ideal, and I think is not unreasonable. However, the problem is anything like this is going to have huge amounts of fallout that are unintended, and. Just what immediately comes to mind is Apple is less likely to be motivated to build these things if they have to do more work and also it doesn't benefit their apps as much as it did before. Mm -hmm. um, even if the right thing to do is always to open things up. Also keep in mind, sometimes Apple's strategy is they build it and then they iterate on it and then they release the API for other people to use it and they use themselves as a test case and they use themselves to explore and then they then ideally they then kind of release it for everybody else. And what a law like, like that would suggest if they constrain that would be you can't do it that way. You have to sort of go out with the first one, which might delay features or kill features altogether. Plus, they're all we we saw this with the uh, the acts that happened during the Clinton administration that were various sort of like early internet laws that had all sorts of weird spinoff uh, issues that were not intended. But uh, and that that's the other concern about something like this. So I don't want to I don't want to poo poo it entirely because I think there is an argument to be made. But I think that it, as with a lot of this legislation, it ends up being you're trying to fix this issue that is not necessarily the right issue to worry about. And in doing so, what you're going to have is a whole lot of unintended consequences that are going to lead to a worse experience for users, and that's who you're supposed to be protecting. Um, right. That's the challenge is uh, yeah. if, if, have you really made life better for third party app developers? Have you really uh, made life better for users? Um, and on a on a macro level, the reason that I think a lot of this stuff is probably not bet on it, not changing is I'm not sure any politician wants to be seen. I know they want to be seen as standing up to big tech at the same time. These are American companies that dominate technology and industry all over the world. And I'm not sure any American politician ultimately wants to be seen as the people who killed America's strongest companies. So I'm a little skeptical of it. So you think, I mean, if you were going to just maybe make a bet, you think that some that this stuff wouldn't get through Congress? My, my, if I had to predict, and I'm, I'm probably, I don't, I'm glad I don't have to. Uh, but my guess is that a lot of it will get watered down. However, yeah. uh, the the because what politicians really want is they want to look good. <laughs> they don't necessarily want to change the world. They just want to look good and get reelected. 
and be able to use this as a way of getting reelected. And ultimately, you've got Democrats in power who who are uh, generally, you know, the, the Democrats want one thing, the Republicans want a different thing. The Republicans um, don't even talk about a lot of this uh, business regulation stuff because they're they're fundamentally they're kind of against it. They're really all talking about like why are conservative voices silenced on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, they uh, that's sort of their speech concerns. Yeah, more than, than antitrust. Whereas Democrats are, are more skeptical of big business and and uh, to a, to a point, can they can they find some common ground? There's not a lot of common ground to be found in Washington at all, and and where they find it. Uh, is a mystery, but but here's the thing that that I that baffles me about this is, sure seems to me like this is at a point now where if you're uh one of the big tech companies, you yes you need to be calling people and expressing your concern, um you also need to show a level of uh of if not contrition then at least a level of understanding that perhaps uh the way you've done business up to now is not conducive to, you know, the way that the the public wants this business to be conducted or that the politicians want this business to be conducted in the future. And um, I see very little evidence of that from Apple. The fact that Apple released a white paper with lots of illustrations and a lot of hypotheticals that's kind of on point and also kind of really missing the point suggests to me that they're still not like if if we expected apple to come out and be like all right let's let's make a deal here i don't know i would i don't think i would have expected them to react like this and that's that's the part that gets me is i think the one way you can guarantee that they're going to move against you is if you're completely obstinate you know are you going all in is apple going all in and saying um try to try to change us <laughs> right? like that seems like the wrong tack to take here but you know maybe they figure it, nothing is nothing particular is going to pass. But the, the challenge is that uh, some legislation could really break apart like the fundamental secret sauce of Apple. And that is that's bad. That's really an existential threat to Apple. So the white paper that Jason's talking about, it was published a couple of days after this, this New York Times report came out. or Maybe it's even the same day. Um, this is also last week. This white paper is talking about the risks of allowing sideloading of apps on the iPhone. So this would be having an ability to install apps from either outside of the App Store, directly from the web like you can on the Mac, or from a secondary store, also like you can on the Mac, like Steam or something like that, right? And Android has these function these functionalities. So Apple state that this would be a serious risk to the security of the iOS platform. They cite malicious software and malware being 15 times higher on Android. Uh, quote, I'll give a couple of quotes. Allowing sideloading would spur a flood of new investment into attacks on the platform, and users would have to constantly be on the lookout for scams, never knowing who or what to trust. And as a result, many users would download fewer apps from fewer developers. My initial thinking is like if apple know that like why don't you just create a secure operating system to account for it and my thinking is you already do don't you right so like one of the things that they reference they give all of these as jason mentioned these illustrated examples that are like huh. meant to like scare you i honestly yeah. feel like they've written a picture book for me which mm-hmm. is really uh, uh um patronizing they talk about an app being able to hold all of your photos ransom unless you pay up. And that makes sense 
if an app had free reign of the operating system, and my expectation is photo permissions should stop this. Otherwise, like, an app could do this anyway if I gave it the right permissions on iOS, right? Like, provided it got through app review. Like, I don't really, you know. Yeah, their, their whole, uh, th- this is one of my big complaints, and I, I, I am wondering what the motivation is for this because also of all the topics, sideloading is the one that comes out. Maybe it's just that they had this thing that they were working on in the background and they decided that they would add it to the pile. But I, part I think of me they thinks, see this is the most likely outcome. No, well, so here's the thing. Part of me thinks that what they're really doing is building a straw man that is this spooky, scary world of sideloading so that then they can offer a counter proposal, which involves them changing some of their policies, right? right? Like, so you set up the sideloading. It's like, who specifically said what we're going to do is for sideloading? I'm not sure it's really that. It's more like Apple wants to raise this monster so that then it can say, hey, we've got some other options. But in building this straw man, um, yes, there's all these questions of like, you know, they don't talk about how on macOS they've built in all of these solutions involving uh, notarization and uh, developer certificates that have to be signed. And it's not the Wild West. And in fact, you could you could even say that if Apple had to do it's very much like if we were caused. Oh, no, if we were told to do sideloading, it would be very bad because we would be unable to stop it. But the truth is that if Apple was mandated to do sideloading, but still had some latitude, what it would do is do something very much like what happened on the Mac, which is they, they have built up all sorts of structures that aren't quite app store approval but do limit what gets approved they do have a kill switch they could very much say like you can't use these apis we will scan for those those will be turned off like it's not as scary as they would have you believe and i'll also point out that um we've seen on android that although it it can happen it happens on the mac too they talk people into turning off security and installing malware like it can happen it would be an issue but i don't think it would be necessarily the dystopia that apple portrays it Mm -hmm. and this is actually a huge reason why most people would stay in the app store if sideloading was allowed because even epic discovered when they did sideloading for Fortnite on the google play store uh initially that it, wa- it wasn't good enough. And they complained about it. And they said, oh, it's all these warnings. And they keep reminding you that it's, it, that it's, a, it's a danger and it's too much trouble. And so they went back in the Google Play Store with Fortnite because it was too much of a, of a problem. Mm-hmm. Like that would probably happen. So it's a very peculiar thing where Apple is describing something that is more extreme than I think it would actually be. That it's it's assuming that Apple wouldn't take measures against it, which I unless they were precluded by the law to take measures against it, they would add a lot of similar security measures to what they have on macOS. Um, and it makes me wonder again if what they're really trying to do here is just throw the you know make everybody terrified about the um, about the the risks of of uh, of side loading, so that they can offer an alternative. That's an Maybe? interesting point. I mean, there is the parallel of, you know, like this is also, I'm sure, help is, is a thing that they also want to have out there for the Epic case, right? Because this is one of the things that uh, Tim Sweeney right. wants is not in the App Store. But right. they are, this, this, this paper is definitely 
doing multiple jobs for them, I think, or at least is their attempt. Um, on this idea of like, like they focus, they focus a lot on uh, malware, right? Right. But scams is also a part yeah. of this, and it's maybe a bigger part. I want to read a quote from John Porter at The Verge, as I thought this really nicely summed it up. Critics have pushed back against Apple's claims about the security of apps on its store. Despite Apple's assurances that it has a 500-plus strong team reviewing around 100,000 new apps and updates every week, there have been numerous examples of scam apps slipping through its uh, checks, including some that hide casinos and kids' apps, or others that charge extortionately high subscription fees. It's like, this is it, right? Like, sideloading, sure, you may, stuff would get through that you wouldn't want, but app review doesn't protect it either right. so that is there's just yeah th there <laughs> is a a whole line through this of how some of apple's arguments i feel would be more convincing if apple was behaving differently in the real world right and this is a good example if apple could point to the app store and say we have spent a lot of time over the last 10 years ensuring that there's no malware there are no scams we patrol that app store it is squeaky clean and i know that apple has put out things john gruber linked to something the other week about like the sheer volume of uh, accounts they disable and apps they kick off the store and the rejections they do and all of that but like it doesn't change the story which is and yet all sorts of scam apps are on the store so much so that if you make an effort to look for them, you can find them easily, right? Like there's that guy who was out there on Twitter, basically listing off scams of the day. And it, it was relatively easy to find them. And they don't seem to be punished probably because they make money for Apple, but maybe because they're just not paying attention. It doesn't really matter. But I think it's a lot harder to make this case if you're Apple, if you can't point to what you're doing now and say, look how Look how safe it is. Look how clean it is. Look look at why you want to stay with us in our app store model because we're uh, squeaky clean. And they're not. Like, they're not. They haven't made that enough of an effort to do that. Um, and the same way, way goes for a lot of, um, of areas where it's not about scams. It's about Apple wanting to protect what it has or make more money. Like, again, most people would stay in the app store. They wouldn't go. They would, there would be warnings about installing other stuff, and they would scare people away. And it's exactly the effect that Epic talked about in the Google Play Store. Most people aren't going to want to go to the apps, outside the app store. Most people are going to not want to go outside of uh, Apple's payment system, I think, because it's super convenient and much better than bringing in your credit card and putting it in an app or in a web page, right? I, I feel like Apple's, but they'll have to compete. And that might mean they have to change their terms, but they could do it. They just choose not to. Um, you put in our show notes this quote from uh, Eric Neuenschwander, who is the head of user, user privacy at Apple, uh, talking to Fast Company, uh, saying, you know, sideloading actually eliminates choice um, because right now you're, you, you are uh, tricked or duped into a dark alley. And so then you're just not going to do what, I don't <laughs> what you want to do. This is one of the, the, like the most, like you, you it, said, because, right. You said, because there is no because in this quote, no. like he doesn't actually ever really like 
no. put a bow on that stage. He just says it and moves it on. It eliminates choice. It's free. Well, freedom is strength, and or what is it? Uh, weakness is strength. It's it's. We have always been at war. It's double double speak. It, it is. It is. It is nonsense. And in fact, what it reminded me of is Steve Jobs, who once said about the iPad. Um, uh, what do you mean we don't offer you freedom? We offer you freedom. Freedom from programs that steal your data. Uh, freedom from porn. Uh, and you know, anybody who tells you that by preventing you from getting something, they're supplying you with freedom. Um, don't believe them. That's, that's (laughs) nonsense. That's doublespeak. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's just bizarre madness. So, uh, what I want to bring up is, uh, what Apple doesn't really talk about is like Apple, just like Apple doesn't patrol the app store enough. Apple also doesn't want to talk about the fact that they just suppress kinds of apps that they don't want to exist on their platforms. And it, it, you know, they can sometimes cloak it in the idea of protection, but the cloak varies in its coverage. Let's say Mm -hmm. sometimes the mask slips a little bit more, but like, if you think about Xbox game pass, right? Apple views streaming games as an existential threat. So they're just not going to bl- allow them on their platform. Now they can get around it in the browser, but like Microsoft one had an app and they were ready to roll that out on iOS. They beta tested it in test flight and Apple said, nope. And, and their reason, they gave a reason, but their reason was ridiculous because the real reason, yeah, the real reason is they don't, they don't like the idea of uh, people playing streamed games on their hardware because it's going to make it harder for them to have their own, you know, Apple Arcade and their own game library in the App Store. They don't. They don't want it. They don't want it. Well, that I guess is their right as the platform owner, right? But like, let's not kid ourselves. One of the reasons that Apple doesn't want sideloading is because Apple wants to control everything that's on their platform, and it's not always for the user's benefit. Users would benefit by having Xbox Game Pass on the system. Users would benefit. Apple does not make that decision for users. It makes it for its own personal gain, uh, whether it's on hardware sales or whether it's on app, their cut of app money. Apple makes that decision that way. There are also all sorts of categories of apps that don't exist on on uh, the iOS app store because, again, not because they don't work, but because Apple doesn't want them there. Um, it used to be a lot more strict than it is now, but there's still like very limited ways to implement development tools. You can't do emulators, or there's a very limited set of emulators that you can do. Also, the developers of those tools that are on the store have to feel like the the sword of Damocles is hanging over their head at all times because Apple can change its mind and say, oh, we said that was okay, but we had a conversation at a high level about Apple's long-term strategy and what benefits Apple, and we're going to take it off the store. Is it because of a user benefit? Not really, not generally, it's not. And so that's that's my frustration with this white paper, is it's Apple saying, look, we control everything to protect you. But what is true is they control everything to protect you and to exert whatever control they need to do to make more money for Apple. Yep. And again, if that wasn't the case, Apple's arguments would be stronger. And so I come back to the fact that I wonder, is the goal here to set this up so that Apple can then come in and say, well, what we propose is a little more opening up of things in the existing app store structure instead of blowing aside in the app store because that would be bad. But like the, the I think sometimes about a decade plus of iOS development, app development, and a lot of great apps out there. I love the platform. How many apps groundbreaking 
life-changing, maybe world-changing apps don't exist because either Apple wouldn't approve it or it would require a level of investment not knowing if Apple would approve it or kick it out after they had approved yep. it. Yep. And yep. so there's a chilling effect and they just don't do it. And that's where we are with the app store being the only path forward. And there's, there, you know, sideloading is not the only solution here. The other solution is that Apple changes its policies, but Apple is very self-interested up to this point in not wanting to bother changing its policies. And, and you know, it, the only option is not sideloading. The other option is Apple opens up the app store to more kinds of apps. I know for me, I would argue on Apple's side of sideloading because it does open up potential risks, right? Like there are, there is a potential for things to get into the store that wouldn't, or get onto people's phones that wouldn't be good, that would pretend to be something else, stuff that would get caught by app review, right? I would be on their side if the app store rules were fairer. But right. considering I don't think the app store rules are fair, considering where we are today, if Apple refuses to to make changes to those rules, then I want the ability for there to be sideloading so there can be increased competition. So Apple can be can have their feet held to the fire right. to do a better job. And like so when I talk about fair, I took I think 30% is too high considering what developers get. Um I think people should be able to use their own payment methods if they want to. Why should they not be able to? Why is mm-hmm. Apple Pay or like Apple's payment system the only way that things can be done? Basically, what we were talking about, what Microsoft's doing, right? Um, I think App Review is mostly fine. You know, I think there needs to be changes, but, you know, it's like, I agree with everything you said, by the way, right? Like, I think that the rules need to be clearer and they need to open up the types of apps that they'll be let in. But honestly, so many of the problems that we have with App Review are actually not about the rules of App Review for the sake of why apps need to be reviewed. The, the issues are the money part. It is like the app review rules that are written to ensure that the in-app purchase is maintained. That's my main issue with app review. And it is like, that's the issue with Xbox game pass, for example. Right. The, the whole argument about sideloading, like, like I appreciate that I can run any app on the Mac that I want. And I have to go through some security settings and, and all of that, but I can do it. I appreciate that. I wouldn't mind that on the, on the iPad and the, and the iPhone. However, I do understand the size of the market and the fact that it's a lot of even more non-technical users than on the Mac by a lot. That you risk having you know thousands or millions of people who will be taken through similar kind of scams to what we've seen on the Mac where they're asked to lower their security and install a thing and they get talked into it because they don't understand it and they end up in a place that's bad and that even if Apple makes every effort to stop that 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 is going to happen like I get I get it like I think that the Apple's white paper is a little bit is disingenuous but there are serious security issues with sideloading but why are we even talking about sideloading we're talking about sideloading because there's no other option and Apple's so restrictive on what happens in the store so you're not left like if you're an iOS developer and you want to do something and Apple doesn't want you to do it you literally can't do it 
And and you could say, well, you could go to another platform. If you're an iOS developer and your skill set is on Apple's platforms, you can't go to another platform. Not easily. Are you gonna you're basically saying retrain, like you need to retrain for a different industry because this industry doesn't exist anymore or doesn't want you here anymore. And that that's the challenge here, is that like I think the standard in a completely closed environment like the app store uh, for flexibility for the developers who are in it should be higher like one or the other if you don't want to do side loading that's fine what is your other offer and you you detailed it and i like i said i think this may be kind of part of a ploy uh, it's an initial gambit for them to ultimately offer an alternative to side loading that allows them to kind of back off on some of this stuff it may even be a a negotiating tactic with uh, with the legislators to say what you know basically what can we give you to not do the side loading thing because it's really bad um but i and you know it might change in ways that developers don't like too. I, I want to mention, make that point. Like, okay, well, what if they reduce their cut? It's like, okay, well, they could do that, but they may do some other, they may start, okay, let's take Xcode Cloud for an example. Xcode Cloud is going to be a service that developers have to pay for. They have to pay Apple to do their hosted stuff. It's a. It's not covered in your developer account, as far as we know. Pricing to be announced later, but it's not going to be covered in your developer account. That's an interesting precedent to set, right? That is another place where Apple is going to charge its developers. We've talked a lot, and I know you've talked about it on Connected as well, about the idea that Apple bought Dark Sky, and they've extended the Dark Sky API a year. But there's this thought like, there are a lot of sleazy weather apps out there. There are a lot of great weather apps out there. Weather data is complicated. Apple, uh, you know, Dark Sky is buying and uh, data and then offering people access to that data, and there's a business model there. And we've talked about, well, what if they uh, offered uh, WeatherKit to app developers and said, this is how you do your weather. And you use the Dark Sky API, which is now instead it's WeatherKit. And, but as we know, um, and have been reminded by some Upgradians, uh, there is a cost to that data. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Dark Sky gets it from data providers. Well, I was thinking <laughs> that's an example where like, and I know this, like, I know this is going to sound wild, but like, well, maybe Apple charges for it. Maybe if you're a developer <laughs> who wants to use WeatherKit, you have to pay Apple for it. It's a it's a an OS framework that you have to pay for access to. Could be. Like there's all sorts of things they could do that would be radically different, that would be ways that developers might be unhappy, but that would be and and that's that that's part of the unintended consequences of all of this, right? Like it's gonna be messier than you think it's gonna be, no matter what happens. But in the end, I can't look at that sideloading paper without rolling my eyes at how extreme its examples are and all the things that it misses and make myself wonder, surely this is part of a larger strategy. <laughs> and the best I've come up with is they want to make this so scary that they can put in it in the context of what changes they want to make in order to keep their exclusivity on the app store and would i be okay if we never had side loading on i on ios and ipad os yeah i mean we've survived this long um and i am really open to the idea that even if apple did its best work that there would you're opening to another level of kind of scamminess mm -hmm. um but it's also a solution to a problem that apple could solve its own it's itself right it's a it's a solution <laughs> to a problem that apple causes by its policies and and if Apple's proposing that it can't, you can't do the solution, and it's not going to change its policies, that seems really dumb. 
So I have to kind of assume that it's it's don't do this because instead let's just modify our policies. But if they, they really believe that they can keep their control over the app store the way it is and avoid this sideloading as a as a potential threat, uh, it's a huge risk, right? Like they detailed their own fears about it. It's a huge risk. If they don't change their policies, they're risking making their platform worse. At some point, you gotta you got to recalibrate and say, no, that's a mistake. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, I don't even know what they're fighting for anymore. I really, I can't, like, the the billions of dollars a year? Like, is that what you're fighting for? Like, is that amount of money that important? You know, this whatever small percentage of the revenue every year, like, is that the point? Is it so the services chart got, like, what is, what's the fight for? I don't understand anymore. Like, it's, it's so frustrating because, look, very clearly, we love Apple, right? We love the products that they make. We love so much of what they do. But this is, like, it's so tiring to me. Like, what are you, what is the outcome you're looking for from this? Yeah. Like, do you think that if you keep, like, you keep doing this, like, people are going to go, oh, all right then. So I talked uh, last week, I think I mentioned Michael Gartenberg, uh, the analyst who used to uh, work at Apple. Um, and I followed him before and I knew him before and then he went inside at Apple and uh, and, and then he, he left Apple and he still doesn't talk about the Apple stuff too much. But something he said um, that struck me this week was Apple has within it this culture that is the near death, near bankruptcy culture of when Steve Jobs came back, right? Because Apple's corporate culture is almost entirely based on Steve Jobs changing the culture when he returned and sweeping people away. And, inst and we talked about it with their work from home policies and like it all comes from Steve Jobs. And it has benefited them by far more than it has, it has hurt them. However, Apple was about to go out of business and Steve Jobs instilled a lot of a combination of Apple being in a really rough state and I think Steve Jobs' own personality and his own particular quirks. Apple has a culture which is we take every last dollar we can. Every last dollar we can. And it's a, it's a strategy that maybe doesn't win a lot of friends, but you can understand it when you are the hard scrabble, almost went out of business, doesn't dominate any market, is you know scraping by for 8% market share. And they take every dollar. Like, I get it. But does somebody need to tell them who they are? So this is this is what I'm saying is <laughs> is now they're not that, and yet no, that culture they're persists. They're the biggest company they're, in the world, right? So this is now. Hey, changing corporate culture is hard. It is. I, I did it. Uh, you know, I tried. I fought that that monster, <laughs> the corporate culture monster, at IDG for a long, long time. It's very hard to change corporate culture. And so I, that's my diagnosis from the outside is Apple has that in its culture because of its near death experience that was, again, 20 plus years ago. <laughs> and they're now the biggest company around, more or less. Um, but it's still in there. And my guess is that these are different parts of Apple that are probably fighting each other internally, which is there's a part of Apple that if you couple its take every dollar off the table with its kind of also instilled by Steve Jobs arrogance that it believes that it uh, creates all value on its platforms and that everybody else is along for the ride. 
which Steve Jobs absolutely believed and the source of a lot of developer disenchantment with Apple's attitude toward them can be traced to that, which is, I think that to this day, there are lots of executives at Apple who, if you really press them on it, would uh, insist that um, Apple is the one that makes it valuable. Apple's the one that makes the iPhone valuable. Uh, you know, Apple doesn't give 30% of iPhone sales to developers, right? But I would argue that without third-party apps, the iPhone would never have succeeded, right? But Apple can't do it. They can't admit that someone other than Apple is shares the responsibility for the success of their products. They can't admit it. That's also a Steve Jobs thing. So when I look at this, I am really seeing a company that is being pushed and the pressure keeps increasing to have to give in to uh, accept that one of the illusions of their corporate culture is no longer valid. And what's terrifying about it as somebody who likes their products is I'm not entirely sure that they won't commit business suicide in order to hold to those beliefs, because that's what it's looking like. Like, mm -hmm. It probably won't happen, but imagine a world where Apple is forced to break itself apart and ship iPhones without built-in software or split off its OS business from its hardware business, at which point it's lost all of the things that make Apple and Apple's products what they are. Um, so I, you know, if I could be a fly on the wall in these meetings, I'm really fascinated by this because like, you can see it, you can see it in the emails, you can see it in that white paper. There is really this belief at Apple uh, that is that you know, they need to control everything and they need to take every dollar off the table. And even in situations where it's clear that they could have gotten the heat off of them a long time ago, they haven't made those decisions. Like even when they, and even when they make a decision like that, like with the small business program where they cut uh, the cut of, of app developers who make a, a million dollars or less uh, to 15% from 30%, even there, it's so riddled with footnotes and, you know, they didn't just say we're cutting it to 15. They're like, well, for the for the people who are under a million, we're cutting it to 15. But if they go over a million, then they're out of the program for a year and they've got to apply to come back in. And like, they didn't need to do that. They could have said the first million. But somebody in there is like, oh, I can't let Epic have the first million at 15 percent. We we can't do that. We got to take that money from them. So, I, yeah, it's. I'm not saying I, I do think Apple needs to change. I think that it, if you're somebody who believes no, everything Apple's doing is great. Um, the truth is that uh, have you seen <laughs> what's going on in the legislatures and it, with the regulators? Like there is increasing pressure, and politicians do want to win, and something's going to have to give. And you know, I I anyway, I think the challenge really is that there are very closely held beliefs that Apple has that were built up by Steve Jobs. And as much as after Steve Jobs died, they said, um, you know, don't do don't ask yourself, what would Steve do? Um, the truth is that Apple's corporate culture is Steve Jobs's ultimate product. And this is a tough one to change. So that that's the best I can come up with about why they're acting this way is that they even in the face of all of this, they just can't bear to give back money and give back a little bit of control because that's how they got here. And so they don't want to change it. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by privacy.com. I buy stuff online like we all do, right? This is the thing that I do every day. 
And sometimes I go to websites where the only thing I can do is just enter in my card information. You know, maybe it's a website I've not come across before. Like I buy things from ads that I see online. It's like, oh, that looks like a cool magazine or whatever. I'd like to have that put on the coffee table. And you put your card in and sometimes, I don't know, I, I look at these things and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to give these people my card information. And sometimes I'll back out the transaction or sometimes I'll like cross my fingers and do it. Well, privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure because by generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving it to people you don't know. One of the reasons that I sit and think is, I'm sure like many of you, I have had my card information compromised in data leaks and stuff like that. And then you have to go through that whole huge hassle of getting a new credit card, a new debit card. And that is so frustrating. And this is the kind of thing that privacy can stop because you would create a virtual card number for maybe every purchase or maybe every retailer or maybe once every little while and you'll have transactions that are attached to it. And if that one got compromised, you just cut it off. Super awesome. But you could also take back control of your payments. You can decide who can charge a card, how much they can charge, and how often. And you can close those cards at any time, whenever you want. Plus, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. This is super good stuff. And as many of our listeners, I'm sure, are 1Password customers, Privacy has partnered with the good folks at 1Password so you can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. So all of your virtual cards are created in 1Password. They'll have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards, and you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever and wherever you want. Head to privacy.com slash upgrade and sign up for an account today and new customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. That is free money. Go to privacy.com slash upgrade and sign up right now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. Hey, Mike, that last segment was sure fun, wasn't it? Let's have some fun. Let's <laughs> cleanse our palates. Woo! Yeah. Summer of fun. Summer of fun. Ask upgrade. Brian asks. Oh, I don't know what that last part of the summer was. La- it was a summery laser. I don't know. Very nice. firing off in. It was all pinks and and aquas. Very cute. Very, very cute. Yeah. I love it. All right. Summer grilling, gas or charcoal? Grilling. Uh, mm-hmm. I am a I am a gas griller. Um, charcoal is way too much effort and way too much work, like to set up and to clean and all those things. I just have, give me a gas grill and let me, uh, use that. Um, I live in a place where it doesn't get oppressively hot most of the time. And so I don't have to, um, have to resort to cooking outside. Uh, it's nice to do, but I don't have to as much as other people do, but I, I get the appeal of, of charcoal, but, uh, it's just... It's just way too much work for uh, for what I want to do. So I'm lazy. Gas all the way. Mike, do you grill things? Have you grilled things? I have. Um, charcoal is very much the standard in the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this is exactly. My expectation would be that people don't typically invest in gas grills because there isn't enough time in the year. right? So a charcoal grill is, is the cheapest way to get into grilling and is maybe easiest for if you're doing it infrequently Mm -hmm. so my personal taste 
is for charcoal. I, I like that, the flavor that that imbues. However, sure. I would always prefer to cook on a gas grill because it's so much easier. So much easier. <laughs> so well, much I'm easier. Ne- I'm never in a situation where I'm grilling for a large number of people. Yeah. And the amount of effort to grill and to set up and to start up and all of that to grill for, you know, two, three, four people, it's just not. Like, again, if it was a cookout or something, if I was if I was having like summer parties where I would have eight or ten people over, mm-hmm. and I was cooking a lot of steaks or a lot of burgers or hot dogs or whatever, yeah, I could see it. But I'm never doing that, and I do grill stuff all the time, all year round, honestly, um, with the gas grill because it's super easy to use. So that's my answer. Um, we had a giant charcoal grill when I was a kid. Like, I get it. I get the appeal of it. Um, it's just simply too much effort for me favorite summer food asks matt summer food so i mean what, going what across you... this line this isn't a, a summer food but it's a food i will only eat in the summer which is a burger from a barbecue it's uh, like a totally different thing right you go to a yes. friend or family member's house and they cook you a burger on the barbecue oh yeah and it's like you've typically got like a bun which is cold and, right like a cheese which is also cold and you put the cheese on, right it's just like a different experience well you got you got to put the cheese first off that they're doing it wrong because you got to put the cheese on the burger toward Obviously, the end of the process so that it melts and you got to put the buns face down on the grill so that okay. they toast I agree with all of this but like what I'm specifically talking about as a thing that I enjoy is that thing from a kid being a kid, which is this is not the best way to cook the burger, right? Mm-hmm. But this is like that nostalgic flavor, yeah, and taste and like texture of this type of barbecued burger from say my that. uncle's house or whatever. Yeah, I know. think I'm gonna go with that too. Actually, I think that the the barbecued, the grilled burger. Uh, in on a hot day, standing outside, sitting outside. I think that is as summery as it gets for me too. I'm trying to think. The only other answer I would give would be like, is not a good answer. It would be like a popsicle or something like that. But no, it's it's a it's a burger off of a grill. I think that's just right. Jeremy asks, "What is your favorite summer beverage?" Ice. Tea was going to be my answer, but I'm going to save that for a future question. Spoilers. <laughs> um, no, my, my favorite summer beverage is the generic way to phrase it would probably be a shandy. But basically, mm. uh, and when I was in, in England, my friend Simon uh, taught me at a, at a pub that no longer exists across the street from the Emirates Stadium. My friend Simon, <laughs> uh, who lives in Highbury, lives in... in, in uh, in that area, uh, introduced me to the lager top. Lager top, yeah. Right, which is literally a beer with lemonade on top. But it, again, it's British lemonade, so it's actually a lemon-lime, lemon it's soda. It's Sprite. It's Sprite. What we call lemonade is closer yes. to Sprite. It's Sprite, because it's bubbly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he introduced that to me, and I was like, you know, beer with citrusy sweet in it is pretty great. Now it comes in different varieties. I will sometimes get a. Uh, uh, sometimes I just will have a beer that is citrusy, so like uh, uh, a Belgian white with an mm-hmm. orange flavor in it. Like uh, I get the. It's called Orange Avenue Wit from Coronado Brewing Company in San Diego. That's a great summer beer. Uh, there's a brewery called uh, Two Pitchers that makes a grapefruit shandy 
that's really good. Um, there sometimes I will just take a, a beer, like a, a wheat beer, and I'll put lemonade in it, our lemonade. So not the bubbly kind, but I'll do that. And that's good. And then there are even some citrusy things that are not quite as sweet, but are, are still have that citrus feel. Um, there's a Coronado Brewing does an IPA, a hazy IPA that's uh, has pineapple. Hi, everybody. Pineapple. And, uh, <laughs> and I found a bunch of other kind of hazy IPAs that are that I don't like IPAs, but the hazy IPAs are are. Uh, more citrusy in yeah. feel, and that for me, and I love dark beer, and I still drink dark beer in the summertime. But for me, a light citrusy beer on a hot day is perfect. Is the perfect summer beverage. Now, Mike, what is it for you? Is it a Pim's cup? I hear those are big. Oh yeah, we we do love a Pim's here, right? Um, in in London, my my wife Adina has a weekly comic. Uh, this is on Instagram, and, and she just posted about this. We enjoy Pims very much um, in the mm-hmm. summer. I also will say that I do enjoy a uh, fruity IPA as well in the summer. Yeah. But for me as well, a cold Coke. Yeah, that's a good one. Just like a, just a cold Coke in a glass bottle. like mm. That is like... So different. It hits so different in the summer. Got a real sense memory thing about that. Yeah, I I have uh, it's Coke Zero, but we have that. Keep that in the fridge, and I I Julian is mostly drinking that, but I will drink that occasionally on a hot day, and it's just or coming back. We came back from a walk. We did a three mile hike through the hills, and it was pretty warm day yesterday. And I came back, and I was like, I'm gonna have one of those cold Coke Zeros because there's something about it. It's a and it's also feels like childhood. A little bit, and, and and it's just got that feeling, that sense memory of summer. But in general, thank you, England, for the lager top. Not the Pimps Cup. I don't like the Pimps Cup. I, I don't like that at all. But the lager top, uh, which is, I'm told, not a very manly thing to do. But my friend Simon was like, who cares? <laughs> it's great. And he's right. <laughs> it is great. So I'll, I'll put lemonade and beer in You make it manly. And also, what does that even matter anyway, right? No, no, I think it's dumb, right? This is That's my point, yep. is that people judge you if you put lemonade in your beer. And it's like, well... Too bad. You're missing out on good things because you're dumb. So there. Yeah, that's right. Maxwell asks, do you feel comfortable taking your devices to the beach? I always worry about sand on or in my iPhone or iPad if I use them while I lay down on a beach towel. I, I'm okay with it. It's not great, but I'm okay with it. I don't bring my iPhone or iPad to the beach generally. I bring the iPhone sometimes and I figure I'm not too worried about the sand. I think if the sand gets in, it'll probably get out. Um, the, I do a lot though with my, my watch. So, uh, I'm not worried about, I'm even less worried about it with a watch. And I also bring a Kindle to the beach a lot and Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, the Kindle might get a little sandy, but I, I don't care because that's why I why I have it. And most of that stuff is pretty waterproof now, so I I don't I don't get too worried about it. What about you, Mike? No, I don't. I don't think about no. it. I don't really care about it. I mean, I have Apple Care. Like I'll just deal with it later. Uh, this is like a general thing for me. I think I'm not particularly precious with my devices because that preciousness means I'm just not going to use them. I mean, and this is similar to like my watches, like. I don't get too precious with them. Like if I bumped them into a wall and I scratched them a little bit, like, okay, like that's what I've done to that now. Like that's just part of it now. Fine. Right. Like it's kind of how I feel about this kind of stuff. I, I try not to worry too much. 
you're going to enjoy your things, you know? Mm-hmm. You buy things to use them. Yeah, and I'll I'll put in a plug. Uh, Kindles or, or any kind of e-ink reader, those are like made for the beach or poolside. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are made for it because the no matter how much backlight there is and how much anti-reflective coating Apple puts on an iPhone or an iPad, like it's still kind of hard to read in the sun. And a Kindle or a Kobo, I have a Kobo now, um, but like those e-ink readers are so good because they're reflective, like paper. So you look at them in the sun and they're just crystal clear. And, you know, you don't want to be bothered with notifications and stuff when you're sitting poolside. You want to just be uh, reading your book. So definitely worth it. Instantiate this asks, does Jason ever turn to iced tea? Yes, is the answer. In fact, last week I made some uh, some sun tea where I put a big pitcher out with a bunch of tea bags in it and let it sit in the sun for a few hours. And then when I'm ready to go from the tea to the iced tea, it is available. Um, we also have an iced tea maker, which is this gadget that basically makes a lot of tea and dumps it in a pitcher that's full of ice. <laughs> and it's great. And so on a hot day, that is absolutely what I will turn to in the, uh, in the afternoon. Iced tea is great. Also, sometimes I make a second pot of tea and it doesn't get, uh, get finished and it's the afternoon and I will just pour that into a glass with some ice and, you know, that's how you make iced tea. Can you explain sun tea? Sun tea, it's like, you know, cold brew coffee? Yeah. It's like that. Oh, but it's, it's cold but brew it's, tea. If it's out in the sun, uh, do you add ice to it afterwards? Yeah, you add ice to it after. Right. It's unless, the sun you like drink, part drink, unless you like drinking warm tea. But the <laughs> idea is the sun tea is like cold brew tea, except you use the power of the sun to heat it up so that it brews a little bit faster. Right. But it's not it's not brewing in boiling water. It's brewing in warm water. And so sun tea is a thing. I don't know. I grew up with it. The idea that you take a big uh, plastic, gl- or I mean, not plastic, a big glass um, jar usually with like a little dispenser on the bottom, but not necessarily. And you put in like a, a bunch of tea bags and you just sit it outside and the sun heats it up. So it's kind of cold brew tea, except a little faster than that. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you bring it in and you drink the tea. It's, it's, it's pretty simple, but it's kind of a fun thing to do. I enjoy sweet iced tea, but it's like only a thing I'll have if I'm like in Memphis or something, right? I'll so, get like a sweet iced tea. So sweet tea is just, you know, you're, I mean, they, sweet tea in the South is they just add, they don't ask. You have to ask to not have sweet tea. <laughs> uh, they yeah. just they just put uh, sugar or syrup in the tea to make it sweet. It's not a godly amount too. It's I love it, but it yeah. is it is a ridiculous amount. It's so <sighs> good, but it's too it's also too much. I put s- sweetener in my iced tea. I do. I want it sweeter. I put honey in my tea in the morning. I I right. sweeten tea. Okay. I am a tea sweetener. But the sweet tea, the southern sweet tea, although it is amazing, is also uh, I couldn't have that every time because it would kill me and also it's too much but it's so good it's too much it's so good kim wants to know what my preferred summer coffee is so i like uh iced lattes um so it's effectively the entire all of the contents of a latte right but just without any of the heat so it's like a bunch of milk and stuff it's not foam milk obviously because it adds the heat so it's just like espresso with milk i do not sweeten coffee hot coffee i do like my iced like lattes to be sweet. Huh. I don't know why. I mean, a lot of the time, and especially for me, the way that I do prefer um, an iced latte is with cold brew, which is stronger 
So right. I like to put a bit of sweetener in that. But just in general, I prefer to have um, sweetener. I don't know if there's something about, honestly, the, I don't know this, like the, the heating of the milk, which might make it sweeter, that when you add hot milk, like a hot milk coffee drink, that there is more sweetness in that milk. So hmm. I don't know if that's the case. This is know. a theory that I am just creating uh, right now at the top of my head. But yeah, I like an ice latte. Marley's asks, what is your go-to drink to cool off on a hot day? Have we already answered this with our favorite I, summer I, beverage? I, I feel like we've already covered this ground, which is it could be a cold Coke, it could be an iced tea, or it could be a uh, a beer with some sort of citrus flavor like a lager top or I mean, I would just uh, also shandy. drink a bunch of water, <laughs> like a bunk, bunch of cold water. Do me, oh, do sure. me nicely, right? Just put a 32-ounce thir- big giant plastic bunch tumbler with ice and water. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Kate wants to know, what is your favorite ice cream? I'd probably say mint chocolate chip, although uh, I got That's a, a, how I know we've had this question before because it's mine yeah. too. I love mint chocolate chip as well. Yeah. I also don't sleep on vanilla. Like vanilla is great. And I know vanilla is a synonym for boring, but like literally I just made some homemade vanilla ice cream last night. Very nice. Um, mm. If you've got a KitchenAid mixer, by the way, a little tip here, a little summer of fun tip. If you have a KitchenAid mixer, get the ice cream maker attachment. It is the best ice cream maker I have ever had. And I've gone through a lot of them but it the bowl just goes where your mixer bowl would have been and there's like a little paddle thing that goes on it and uh, you let it run on the low speed for 20 minutes and uh and then put the result in the freezer for like an hour or two and you got great ice cream so i highly recommend homemade ice cream is the best it's it's just because it doesn't it not only was it not made in a factory, but it's like also not been transferred in various trucks that may have melted it a little and then refrozen it a little. It's got more air in it. So like good homemade ice cream is amazing. Um, so I'll, I'll throw that out there. And especially if you've got a KitchenAid mixer, get the ice cream maker. So good. I will also say like, so uh, mint chocolate chip is my favorite, like going to a, like a store and getting a cone or whatever. But I also love many Ben and Jerry's flavors. Oh yeah, I mean we had a uh, we had one like I I love peanut butter so peanut butter in mm-hmm. um and and cookie dough is good and chocolate chocolate brownie chocolate fudge brownie was a go to Ben and Jerry's f- flavor for me for a while when we had a when we lived near a Ben and Jerry's uh retail outlet right oh, God, like I would that was die. pretty great and then we have uh, a great uh, ice cream chain that just went out of business during the pandemic called Three Twins and they had some really great chocolate flavors especially so i love all ice cream but in a pinch uh mint chip is just my my go-to my favorite ice cream place in the world though is salt and straw and i think i've been to three of them now or in like three different places super good big fan yeah r.i.p three twins so good and then they decided to expand into like the do you know the ice cream business the retail Ice cream shipping to stores, mm-hmm. not the having your own store, but like shipping to stores. That business is super cutthroat. And these guys tried their best, um, but it turns out that they're uh, as nice as they were as people and as good as their ice cream was, you you can't compete in the in the freezer section. That's a shame. It's just, it's brutal in there. It's hard to compete. Like ice cream, it's good, but boy, don't be in the ice cream business. It'll get you. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. 
I don't know if you ever had the time to read some of the fine print that appears if you start, you know, thinking you want to go to incognito mode or whatever. But you might find that it says your activity might still be visible to employer, school, internet service provider. If you really want to stop people from seeing the sites that you're visiting, you need to use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've ever used Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, at somebody else's house. Without ExpressVPN, every visit, every site that you visit could be logged by the admin of that network, or it could that information could be collected up by companies that you are not aware of, even when you're in incognito mode. Look, and what's more, that information could be sold to advertisers. You don't want that, right? It's your information. So you, ExpressVPN is an app that can encrypt the, all of the network uh, data that you have going on and reroute it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays just that private. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices and is super easy to use. The app is just one button. You tap it to connect and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. And also, I love that I can say, hey, I'm in this location or I'm in that location if there's something I want to get access to. But I do really appreciate just how quick it is to fire it up when I'm on a network that I'm unsure of. So stop letting strangers invade your privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com upgrade. Go to expressvpn.com upgrade to get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash upgrade to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and Relay FM. Next question comes from Simon. Do you prefer sand beaches, pebble beaches, or no beach, or all? Hmm. I prefer sand beaches. Very traditional, like a good sand beach. Put down a towel, put up a little uh, umbrella or something, some other kind of shade. Uh, ideally it's an, you know, an ocean where you're getting the kind of the waves pounding a little bit. I love it. You know, there's a reason I love Hawaii, Mike. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is that the beaches there are really good. So I like, I like that. This is where John Syracuse would pop in and say something about mud beaches at lakes. (laughs) Like I, I don't, I don't do that. I, I, I'm, I'm a sand beach kind of person. I'm going to roll this up with David's question. He says, for a summer vacation, lake house, lake house or beach house. So I'm assuming mm. your beach house. I've never had yeah. a lake vacation. Uh, we don't well, have you know, big lake, lakes here, right? Lake, like, lake tourism is, I have had a lake vacation in the UK. I've had two because I've been to the Lake District twice. And the lakes there are beautiful and wonderful. And you take a little boat out and it's, it's mm-hmm. great. But I, I ultimately choose, I want to be by the beach. And, and so that would be my choice. Yeah, like the Lake District is like its own thing here, right? Mm -hmm. Like people don't go to the Lake District, is my expectation, in a way as if this is kind of like our beach vacation, right? Which is my understanding, at least from people I know in America, that that is a thing that you can do, right? Like you can go to a lake and you're basically at the beach. Well, yeah, if you're you're at... um... If you're in like Minnesota or something, like I have people I know in Minnesota, and they go, they, you know, they go to their cabin in the lakes, and and they're on a lake, and it's it's fine, it's great. But like, what's my preference? Uh, my preference is definitely uh, the beach. Like that's just that's just how it is. There's nothing wrong with lakes. Lakes are fine. We go, we we used to go to a family camp up in the Sierras by a lake and would, you know, use a little paddle boat and go hike around the lake and then paddle on the lake. And that's all great. That's fun. But if I have to choose, I'm going to go, I'm going to go beach. I like sand beaches. I don't know who prefers pebble beaches. I don't know why you would prefer that. I mean, I grew up with pebble beaches, very normal in the UK. 
I don't know why you would want to sit on a pebble beach. I, I read uh, a great story. Uh, I think it was in the New York Times, and it was about how British people are vacationing in the UK this year mm-hmm. because they have no other choice. <laughs> and it's all of these towns that used to be very successful um, who are now uh, not because everybody in the UK now goes on vacation to Spain mm-hmm. where they can have a sunny beach. And one of the things that struck me about it, it was Bognor. Bognor Regis was the town that they went to. <laughs> yeah. And it's like... Oh, I love hearing you say that, Jason. That's so fun for me. How do you say Bognor bon, Regis? No, 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 no. It's not that different. It's just like Bognor, Bognor. Regis. It's just like the Bognor, like the way that... I don't know. Well, so it's... Bognor used to be Bognor, and then the king and then the king came there. And they're like, oh, man, the king came here. We're going to rename the town with Regis on the end for king, because this is like where the king's place. And there's a, apparently a, a rumor that on his deathbed, they're like, no, 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 you'll get better, and you'll go to Bogner. And he and his last words, allegedly, were, I don't want to go to Bogner, <laughs> uh, which is they've been trying to live that down. The point is they've got a beach. It's pebbly. Um the whole story is sort of like the people here are very happy that people are coming, but also we can see all the reasons why people don't go there anymore. So there you go. Bogner. Enjoy. Bogner I mean, a UK beach holiday is its own like thing. You know, I guess that's how I did all my holidays growing up. Go to Blackpool or something. Yeah. You and know? it's like amusements, which is an arcade and yeah. very particular types of donuts. Boardwalk yeah, kind of thing. Pier. Yeah. Like I love all that kind of stuff. Um, I have a special, it has a special place in my heart, you know, but I much prefer a real beach <laughs> in a hot place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not an all day beach person. Uh, I, I don't do very well in the sun, right? Like I, I burn very easily. <laughs> right. Uh, the British people have But that. I like it and I love the ocean, you know, like I like getting in the ocean, so... The, anyway, the um, yeah. the headline in the New York Times uh, is next year Brits will fly abroad, but for now it's Bogner Bingo. <laughs> yep, very good. Because bingo is also a big thing. Yes, uh, well that's that that story starts out with people playing bingo. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I you know everybody's vacations got a little weird, you know, because of the pandemic, and are still a little bit weird. So that's that's just part of it. So good for the people of Bogner that they've got you know people visiting but but i i what what hit me about that story was when they got to the part where they're like and there's a beach but oh it's really not good and i thought oh no <laughs> the beach isn't it's a rocky beach that's no good nobody no who 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 wants to go there patrick wants to know favorite baseball park food hot dog yeah hot it's dogs. a hot dog there yeah. there are lots of you know we have great food at ballparks these days they like the the um food and drink at american ballparks is generally so much better than it used to be there are some great um food options i've had a great barbecue sandwich at the at the giants stadium i've had a fantastic uh there's a they have a a rice a hot rice and bean bowl the cha cha bowl that is uh amazing but like and then the garlic fries are famous. Like there are all these all these things you can get that are good. I had Shake Shack at the Met Stadium. Right? You know, like there are but options. My favorite, I mean, and, and that I still get, we went to a, a game a few weeks ago, our first game this year or last year. And um 
in the end, what did I have? Couple, couple of little all beef hot dogs from the the hot dog stand. It's like because it's baseball, like a beer and a hot dog. I, I sometimes get those fancy uh, baseball pretensions and I go get a cha-cha bowl or a barbecue sandwich or something like that. But most of the time, just got to go with the, with the hot dog and beer. Bryant asks, prescription sunglasses, sunglasses with contact lenses, or no sunglasses? <laughs> I, I uh, refuse the validity of this question. Okay. I have glasses prescription glasses and little sunglass things that oh I clip you do on a clip on yeah yeah you you do good clip on your clip on's good yeah because i don't want i don't want to have like an extra pair of glasses when it's bright and then yeah. take them off when it when the cloud goes in front of the sun so i just have the little clips that go on my regular glasses what about I you mean, this is so difficult for me like i would prefer prescription sunglasses but then i also have to carry the glasses yeah it's so frustrating. I don't yeah. do contact lenses. I don't want to. I have no desire. Um, most of the time, I would do no sunglasses. Uh, but like, I will never wear sunglasses in the UK because it's just like, I just don't do it. But if I'm going on vacation, I will take my prescription sunglasses and we'll just try and get around that. Um, but I much prefer to to have both, but it's annoying. Maybe I should look into some cool clip-ons too, like Jason's. Jason has cool clip-ons. Yeah, I mean, you ha- I had to buy, basically I had to shop for, if I want clip-ons, I have to shop for glasses that come with clip-ons or mm-hmm. that you can buy clip-ons for. Because otherwise you're retrofitting it and it never fits right and they don't look right. So I, I just put that in my, my list because I, I don't mind carrying the clips around. I mean, it is a, an extra something to carry around, but it, it's a lot less of a problem than bringing a whole other pair of glasses with me. People in the Discord are upset that I don't, as if it doesn't get sunny in the UK. Look, get sunny in the UK. I know that, right? And lots of people wear sunglasses here. But then I have to also carry my glasses. And like, I if I'm in the summer, I don't want a bag, right? Because it's hot. So I don't want a bag, right? So I go with just my regular glasses and have no sunglasses. Nathan asks, in the areas where each of you live, how many months does summer feel like it lasts? And is that enough summer, not enough, or too much? Wow. A great question. I'll, I think it might be easier for me to answer this. Go ahead. About three months, right? Kind of starts in June, ends in September, by and large. Um, that can shift, but we're looking at about three months. And also, like, British summer varies, right? Like, today it's, like, 18 degrees, um, but that still feels summery to me because it's a little bit rainy in, in the way that summer is rainy, uh, which is different to winter rainy. Fun, summer rainy is way worse. <laughs> it's so much worse. Uh, and um, I would say for me here, that's enough. Like mm. just enough verging on too much. Yeah. Um. So this is a complicated question because of where I live. I would say that we get summer in in September and October. And then interspersed from May through the end of August, which is four months, there's a month or two worth of summer in there, in those four months. Hmm. So... 
on one level, like on on one level, honestly, from May to the end of October is the dry season here. And it's of a kind, but like for for where I live, feeling like it's summer down here by the bay, uh, only really happens for two months plus a handful of weeks scattered throughout the rest of the summer. And my answer is going to be, I don't think that's enough summer. I would like, you know, I I happen to live a pl- with a with a at a place that has a little too much fog for me. I wish I was a little bit warmer here. And my wife disagrees. She likes she likes this level. She doesn't want it hotter. I would like it a little hotter. I grew up where it was very hot and we had very hot summers and I miss having a little bit more warmth. Although the good news is just wait around and it gets hotter. So, uh and in terms of of the overall health of my state, I would say it's it's uh too much summer in the sense that we need more rain and it doesn't rain here in the summer. So mm. in that way, the summer should be shorter. But I don't get to control the weather. Not yet, anyway. Not, but I mean, give me time. The, my weather <laughs> stations on. are more for measuring than controlling. <laughs> You're so just learning right now. <laughs> yeah. Dave asks, "What are your favorite gadgets or tools that you only use during the summer?" Well, for me, a lot of the stuff that gets pulled out of the storage in the in the summer is like the cushions for the the backyard furniture and the the hammock. Um, we do use the, the grill all, all year long. So, and then, um, also we've got string lights uh, over our patio now, uh, which is really nice. And that's a nice little gadget that, you know, in the winter, it's less likely that we're going to be hanging out outside. That's more of a summer thing. And even then only on summer days where it's not freezing outside after the sun goes down. But, uh, I would say the string lights, the, the, you know, the backyard furniture, the hammock, stuff like that is, I actually also put a, um, I have a Sonos speaker that I put outside mm. in the summer and it just sits out there so I can airplay to it when we're out there. That's it. What about you? My Dyson fan. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've got, I've got a, one of those and I only use that in the summer. That's true. I mean, so I'm kind of cheating a little bit. We have, we have a couple, one of them we only use in the summer. Uh, the other one, it's one of the hot, cool fans right. so we do use it in the winter as well but mine is I just really a cool only fans they're, they're and, I, and it sits on my um ever since i bought it, i used to have a floor one and then jamie took that off to college mm-hmm. and i was like all right i gotta get a new fan and i thought i'm gonna get the dyson fan they really I'm are the best it. they and are expensive on, but they're it, so good yeah so it sits on my desk most of the time although on a really hot day i'll carry it into the living room and we'll run it in there but it mostly just sits on my desk sort of very quietly um circulating the air in here on a warm day it's nice and Kim wants to know, Jason, how's your garden furniture from IKEA holding up? <laughs> the uh, the IKEA furniture is great. I mentioned the uh, cushions. That's all part of Frozen Quest mm-hmm. back in the day. One one cover. Still, I know it came from Norway. Thank Episode you, Norway. Two hundred and thirteen <laughs> of upgrade, starting at around forty five minutes. Frozen Quest. Uh, but the it's great. Um, you know, I was always reluctant to get, um, you know, it's, it's plastic furniture basically, but it's, you know, it's woven and it's sort of rattan like, and I was never really a fan of that material, but the fact is it's held up really well. Um, the cushions are great. We, we take them, you know, when it's going to rain, which really doesn't happen unless you're really in the sort of beginning of spring. Um, otherwise we put them away for the winter. But uh, so they just basically stay out there and I got to got to clean them off. And, you know, occasionally a bird will 
drop on them or we'll get a bunch of leaves and stuff and pollen you got to brush off but basically it, they're really comfortable it's really nice having a couch outside essentially and then um we have some uh not from ikea but we have a uh, a table and and chairs and stuff that we bought a while ago that is falling apart and i am uh i ordered new uh a new table and chairs and stuff that i'm really looking forward to because i think that's going to kind of be the final um if anything would be considered final upgrade to the uh to the backyard ever since we poured the concrete and and really redid our backyard and so you put the new concrete the string lights the ikea furniture and then this new table that we're going to get i feel like we'll finally kind of um completed our project to make our backyard nicer because our house isn't very big and so when it's nice out it is really nice to be able to use the, the house gets bigger and i'll tell you last year during the pandemic when we had four people um stuck in our house it was really nice when the weather turned better to be able to spill over out into the outside it it was uh it's good to have that space and i like using it thank you to everybody who sent in a summer themed ask upgrade question if you would like to send us in one in for the future uh i mean if you really have some our summer question that we haven't asked is you can feel free to send them in sure. but usually they're tech focused just send out a tweet with the hashtag ask upgrade or use question mark ask upgrade in the relay fm members discord which you get access to if you sign up for upgrade plus you can go to getupgradeplus.com and you will get longer ad-free episodes every single week if you need a longer episode than this one today go for it <laughs> you can get it we did it uh and that's i Salute you. Uh, also, go to UpgradeYourWardrobe.com where you can pick up a Summer of Fun t-shirt or a Dongletown t-shirt or a Dongletown Surf Club t-shirt available for just two weeks. Please go there right now. UpgradeYourWardrobe.com. Click the link in the show notes too if you would like to. Thank you to ExpressVPN, Privacy, Instabug, and Bombus for their support of this show. If you'd like to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com and he is at jsnow, J-S-N-E-L-L on Twitter. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snow. Goodbye, Mike Hurley. <laughs> <laughs>